So the second week in a row, we come to a story in the Bible uh, that that is so powerful and so awesome and so filled with the love of Jesus that it's difficult for me to know how to preach it. And maybe if you haven't preached a sermon before, that might sound backwards to you. Like, aren't the great passages the easy ones because they're just powerful and they're wonderful? But but sometimes it's not because really when I'm studying and I'm reading about it, I'm thinking... The things I'm studying and learning are not adding anything to the power of this story. And so what I want to do is I want to come on Sundays and I want to just look at you and I want to say you need to read this story. And then I want to sit back down. But uh, you pay me, so I, I don't think that that's an acceptable option. And, and you know the feeling, right? Have you ever watched a really good movie or, or read a really good book and you're trying to explain it to somebody? And, and you're, you're kind of stumbling over your words and, and you're trying to tell how great it is and your voice is really loud and fast and then finally you go, you just need to watch it or you need to read it, right? And that's how I feel about last, I felt about last week's passage of scripture and that's how I feel uh, about today's passage of scripture. So last week what I did, if you were here, you know this, is that I did a first person narrative, uh, version. And that worked pretty well. Uh, I played the character of a uh, an ex-blind man, and you can read that story in John 9. But I didn't think that I would be nearly as convincing as a Samaritan woman. Uh, and so so I decided that that wasn't going to work today. And so ha, I thought people might laugh, and it worked out this time. Uh, and so today instead, this is what I want to do. I, I want to try to help you understand this story uh, like a first-person Jew would have understood this story. And John, the book of John, is really cool because it's kind of like an onion. And when you read the book of John, it's it's really good on kind of a surface level. And, and a lot of times pastors tell people uh, that it's the first book that they should read when they become a Christian. I wouldn't be one of those pastors because I know it's like an onion and I know how deep it can go. And, and sometimes that's lost on people when they read it without any background information. But John is cool because that surface level is great and you read it and you're like, hey, this is neat. But then as you continue to read and study it, it, it continues to go deeper and deeper. And the more you learn about John, the more it seems that you need to learn about the book of John in order to understand it uh, as best that you possibly can. And so my hope as we read this story today together is that I will provide you some background information that will help you start to take away some of the onion layers, and start to see this story for everything that this story should be. And so I'm just going to give you some facts, and then I'll read the story, and, and maybe I'll say some words at the end. But, but my hope is that I can just read the story to you, and you can go, wow, that's a good story. I want to tell somebody else about it. So the first thing that you need to understand about this story that uh, we will read in, in John chapter 4 uh, is that uh, is that Jewish people did not value women very much in the first century. In fact, a lot of the world uh, at that time didn't value women the way that we value women today. And let me just give you a, a couple of ways that you could see this in that culture. First of all, Jewish people worshipped at a place called the temple. And in the temple, in the very center, was the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was was most clear and most powerful. And, and, and only a few people could get in there, only one a year, actually, the, the high priest. And, and, and from that spot in the temple, there was different sections of the temple as you went out. 
And men could get closer to the presence of God than women. And so the women were out a level and they could hang out and then you would have the Gentiles outside of them. But it shows in the worship of God where they placed women outside of men. Men didn't want to have theological conversations with women because they didn't value their opinion on theological issues. And so they would just move right past women when they were having those discussions. In fact, they devalued women so much that men didn't even talk to women in public. And this part, you may have heard that part before, but what I'm about to say next, I didn't know until this last week. They wouldn't even talk to their own wives in public. That's how little they valued women. For a first century Jewish person, and many people around at that time, women were just second class citizens. They were unimportant, they were second best to the men, and, and really they were seen as, as objects for men to use and, and to get rid of when they wanted to. You can see that they were punished when men weren't sometimes. If you looked at John 7, you would see a story of a woman caught in adultery. And there the woman has been caught in adultery, but I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but adultery requires two people. And you don't read anything about the man who had been caught in adultery with the woman, just the woman. And the, the people pick up stones to stone this woman to death, not even thinking about the man's part in it. And so when you think about women in, in the first century, in the Jewish mindset, they, they just were unimportant in the society's mind. Uh, people didn't care about them as much as men. They couldn't do the things that men could do. A really interesting fact is, is that w women were only allowed to be married three times in their lifetimes, but they weren't ever allowed to be the ones who caused the divorce. You see the irony in that? You're looking at a woman saying, you can only be married three times, but men have the right to throw you to the curb if they find you unfaithful, and they, they used unfaithfulness for just about anything they didn't like. The dinner's not very good? Well, that's not very faithful of you. You should have done a better job. I'm not kidding. And so they would push them aside. Now, Paul, I think it's important to bring him up at this point because people look at Paul, the biblical author, and sometimes they look at the Bible and they say, that book is sexist and that guy named Paul was just so demeaning to women. And when you read things like, hey, women submit to your husbands, and you read that from a, a 20th century, 21st century mindset, and you're looking back on it, it's easy to go, how could he say something like that? But you have to look at the rest of the story and see that Paul also says, hey, husbands, love your wives like you love yourself, and like Christ loved the church, even dying for the church. And you must see that Paul elevated the place of women. He talked about them as equals, he ministered with them, and he even said that there is neither male or female in Jesus. Now, he wasn't saying that we should do away with, with genders altogether like some in our society would like us to believe, but he was saying that in Christ, male and female are equal. And so while the Jewish mindset was one where women were pushed down and, and they, were, they were seen as lesser, the Bible elevates the place of those women. So that's the first thing you need to know about, about our story here. Uh, the second thing that you need to know is that Jewish people hated Samaritans. And, and when I say hate, I don't mean they hated Samaritans like, like you say, well, I hated 
this meal. I get I I must be hungry. I I I didn't even that wasn't planned to talk about food either of those two times, but anyway, uh it, it's not like that. It's not like, "Oh, I hated that movie or I I hated that meal." It's not like that. They, they really 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 hated the Samaritans. Now, this hatred went back thousands of years, and if you went back to the Old Testament, you'd see that Israel is split into a northern and a southern kingdom. And at that time, when that happened, Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. Okay, So in about 721 BC, the Assyrians come in, and they kidnap, they take away the Jewish people. They take away the people, almost all the people, from the, the land of Samaria, which became, it was a city, but it became kind of the region as a whole. And they take all the people out of Samaria, except for a few people that were lesser in society. They were not the upper class, they were not political figures, they were not the rich. And they left some of those people there. And then they sent other people from other countries to go populate that land. What happened, you can read about this in 2 Kings 17 and 18, is that those people started to intermarry with the Sumerians who had already been there. And so the Jewish people, after they return from exile, are looking over at Samaria and they see this group of, of Jewish people who are now, who are now mixed bread, breeds uh, of what they once were. And they start to look down on them for this. They see them as people whose religion has been tainted by the beliefs and the idols of the, of the other people who have come into the land. Now, to be fair to the Samaritans, that actually isn't fully true. They, they don't have any uh, history with, with idol worship or pagan worship, aside from what we know of the Jewish people in the Bible. But they definitely did not worship God the way that the Jewish people in Galilee or uh, Judea, for example, worshipped God. One example of this is that they, they decided that they were not going to take any of the books in the Bible except for the first five, which are called the Pentateuch, as Scripture. And so they looked at the time of Jesus at the first five books and they said, we'll believe those and we'll take those as the Word of God, but the rest of those books we could do without them. That was pretty good for them because it was able, that, that alone, being able to erase some of the Bible, uh, helped them to be able to do what they wanted and, and the main thing that allowed them to do was to build the second temple. We studied Nehemiah about one year ago in this church and, and we read about how Nehemiah and the exiles came back from Assyria and they built the temple. And during that time the Samaritans said, hey, we'll help you. And Nehemiah and the Jewish people said no. Just like that. It was that clear. It was that cut and dry. It was that simple. No, we don't want your help. You are half-breeds who are not worshiping God correctly. And so the Samaritans said, well, we only believe the first five books of the Old Testament. It didn't tell us where the temple was supposed to be in Jerusalem. And so we'll build our own temple. And so for a while there were two competing temples, the one in Jerusalem, which is the proper one, and the other temple that was in the land of Samaria where the Samaritans would worship. Now you might think, well, this was a long time ago. I mean, the Old Testament's a pretty big book, and that goes back pretty far in the Old Testament. But uh, things were really, really bad during the time of Jesus because a man named John Hyrcanus uh, in about 400 B.C. said, well, I'll take care of this theological issue. And he went over to Samaria, and he destroyed the temple that they had built so that they could no longer worship there. 
And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and things are really at an all-time high. They hate each other, the Samaritans and the Jewish people. So much so that the, the Jewish people had a, had a phrase, a, a line that they would utter about the Samaritans. And this, this line goes back to the mid-first century at least. So, so it definitely could have been a phrase that Jesus himself would have heard. The daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle. Now, if you're paying attention to that, you just said, wow, that's pretty sick and wrong, right? Menstruants. Okay, I'm not going to explain it for you, uh, but it's not a nice thing to say. It's, it's gross, it's dirty, and they're saying this is, this is that way from the cradle. And what does this vulgar statement mean? It, it really just means that they looked at the Samaritans as unclean from the time of their birth. They, they saw them as so unclean that many of the strict Jews would actually go around Samaria when they were traveling. Not all of them, but many of them would do this in, in order to avoid having any contact with them. And you need to know for our story that they especially saw contact with their women or their food and water utensils as, as defiling them. And so if you came in contact with one of their women, then you were ceremonially unclean. You were no longer purified in your religion. And so they hated it, and they avoided them, and they wanted nothing to do with them. Another thing that you need to understand for a, a deeper and more powerful understanding of this story is that uh, for Jewish people, sex outside of the con confines of marriage was, was seen as really bad. And I may not have needed to say this 50 years ago, but in our current society, uh, sex outside of marriage has become normal. It's not healthy, it's not good, but it is now seen as normal. But for a Jewish person, and even a Samaritan person, they would have seen this as, as very bad. And, and some sins, uh, sex outside of marriage sins, would have been punishable by death. But if it wasn't a, a sin that, that was setting you up for the death penalty, then you would have been scorned and looked down upon for all of your life if people knew that you had, had done, had had sex outside of marriage. It's one of the things that makes the story of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, so impressive. Because Mary is told that she is going to have a baby, and she's a, an unmarried virgin at that point. And when she hears this, she knows that for the rest of her life, she is going to be scorned and ridiculed because people are not going to believe that the birth was supernatural. They're going to think that she had sex with somebody who she was not married to. And yet, Mary says gracefully, I will do, God, whatever you will. It's, re it's really impressive, uh, and it makes Mary even better when you know this about her. And so for the Samaritans and the Jewish people, they looked at people who had sex outside of marriage, and they said, you are no good, you are dirty, you are tainted. Another thing that's important to understand is that women drew well from water from wells, that's hard to say, women drew water from wells in the cool of the day. They would not go during the hottest parts of the day, for obvious reasons. You go out into the desert to, to get water, you're doing manual labor, of course you're going to do it when it's, when it's the coolest temperature that you can probably find. And so if a woman was out drawing water in the middle of a day, then it was because they were trying to avoid the other women in the town. Perhaps 
because they are being ridiculed and scorned because people know that they have committed sexual sin. Now you say, well, how, how could somebody know if somebody commits sexual sin? Well, sometimes it's obvious like when somebody is living with somebody else. The other thing that's really important to, uh, to understand before I read this story is that it may feel a little random, but, but Samaritans and Jewish people saw living water as synonymous with running water. Running water is obviously better for drinking than well water because well water sits there and it gets disease and things like that. And so when you said living water in the first century to a Jewish person or a Samaritan, what they, what they heard you saying is running water. Basically, they're looking at you and they're going, okay, you know of a creek if you told them that you know of living water because the water that moved provided much better experience for your life. Another thing that you need to understand is that John often shares stories of Jesus talking about physical things as metaphors to refer to spiritual things. Uh, oftentimes when this happens, people don't understand and they get stuck on the physical aspect of what Jesus is saying. Let me give you a, a pretty clear example. John 3, 2 through 4. It says he, and speaking of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee of the time and having a conversation with Jesus, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter the second time into the mother's womb to be born. Jesus is using metaphorical language, but Nicodemus doesn't understand that, and so he asks a pretty logical question. How can a person climb back into their mother's tummy and be birthed again? It cannot happen, right? And so Nicodemus is unable to see beyond the physical aspect of Jesus' metaphor into the spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to get across to him. Another example is in John 6, and there Jesus calls himself the bread of life, and he says that people must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood if they are going to have eternal life. And after Jesus finishes saying this, the people are unable to see past the, the, the metaphorical language that he is using, and they think he is talking about cannibalism. And so many people who had claimed to be his disciples walked away, so many that Jesus looked at the twelve disciples and said, aren't you going to leave me too? And so in the book of John, we see oftentimes people don't see the metaphorical language that Jesus uses, and they are turned off by the things that Jesus said. So those are things that I think you really need to have in mind. You need to understand the place of women in that, in that culture, in that society, in, in that century, really. You need to understand the utter hatred that the Jewish people had for Samaritans. You need to understand that, that living water was a reference in, in most people's minds to flowing water. And you need to understand that John records many times when people don't understand the metaphorical language of Jesus. And, and with that in mind, I just want to read you this story. And I really want, just, you know, you may have heard it. You probably have heard it. You may have seen art based on this picture. There's ministries, or this story, there's ministries named after it. But I just want you to be impressed by it. I think it's the best thing I can do for you. John 4, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. 
although in fact it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went once more to Galilee. Now he had to go. Now I'm, not, I'm just going to pause once in this story. This will be my only pause. But, but when we read here, now he had to go, it's actually a word that John uses throughout his gospel to refer to things Jesus needed to do in order to fulfill his mission and the will of his heavenly Father. Now, John may have just put it in here and, and used a word that, that had no meaning, but it seems that he's saying Jesus needed to go to Samaria to fulfill God's mission in his life. And we'll see what that is in a minute. So we had to go through Samaria. So we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired and thirsty as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Skipping to verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the, town and from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Pretty powerful and deep story, and I'm tempted just to sit back down and, and leave it alone. But I just want to give you a few things that I hope. I, I hope 
that you will take time later and you will look at it and say, wow, how deep does this story really run? And I hope that you will allow yourself to process the evangelism that Jesus does. It's a great picture of how we can lead others to Christ. I hope that you will allow yourself to process the way in which the woman comes to a relationship with Jesus. It's not as quick and not as easy as we might hope it to be. It's something that takes steps for her to come to. I hope that you will notice that this woman is more interactive with the metaphorical language than Nicodemus the Pharisee in chapter 3, one of the religious leaders of that time. I hope that you will recognize that this woman is more open to understanding what Jesus has to say about spiritual food and water than the disciples who have hung out with Jesus on a daily basis are when they come back and talk to Jesus in twenty-seven in verses 27 through 38. I hope that you will recognize your need for living water and you will say, man, I want that. And you will say, I, I, I can have that by coming to a relationship with Jesus and you will make that decision to admit that you are a sinner and believe that Jesus gave his life for you and then give your life to him. I hope that for those of you who have given your life to Jesus that you will look at this story and say, man, what does it mean for me in my everyday life that I now have living water, that I now have eternal life that comes through Christ? But the thing that I, I hope most as, as we look at this story today is that you will consider how Jesus, the King and Savior of the world, has to go to a town called Samaria filled with people that his people hated and to a woman who was the lowest of society because he wants her to have a relationship with him. He goes out of his way to reach out to somebody that is disenfranchised, who is unloved, who is unrespected, who is uncared for, who is scorned and ridiculed by the other woman in her town. He goes out of his way, breaking the cultural norms, breaking religious rules that have been put in place by men in order to lead this woman to a relationship with Jesus. For the last several weeks and for one more week, we are making a concentrated effort to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We're calling it the Jesus experiment and we're trying to align our thoughts and our feelings and our words and our deeds with that of Jesus. And the truth is, as you read the Gospels, as you read this story and most of the stories about Jesus in the New Testament, you quickly realize that you cannot be like Jesus unless you start to reach out to the people in our world that seem unlovable that seem difficult to love, that seem like nobody likes them and nobody cares about them. What's even more is that Jesus doesn't seem to notice any of these things about this woman. He doesn't seem to walk up to her and think, man, Samaritan, we hate you. Woman, I don't want to have a conversation with you. He looks at her and he sees a person in need of a relationship with him and all other things are thrown to the side because he wants her to know him and to have living water so that she can have eternal life 
forevermore. If we are going to think and feel like Jesus, then we must stop looking at people and saying, you're weird, but I'll reach out to you anyway. We must stop looking at people and saying, man, this is going to be difficult because you're not really the lovable of society. But we must drop those things and say, I love you because you are God's creation and you were created in his image and you need a relationship with him. And so I care about you like Jesus, my God and my Savior. What's even more? That on top of, of not thinking about other people that way, we need to recognize that we are the unlovable and the uncared for and the unsaved of society before we come to Christ. It's easy for us to look and say, man, they hated Samaritans and they didn't really like women that much. And, and we can look around and say, oh, I pity those people like that in our society. But the thing is, the mercy and grace of God came down upon us when we were unlovable. We were his enemies, the Bible tells us. And yet he came down here to our world to die for our sins so that we could enter into a relationship with him. And he has walked into our Samaria, the, the life that we have, in order to reach out to us and say, I want to have a relationship with you. If we are going to learn from this passage, then we must look at it and say, Man, Jesus, you are loving, you are gracious, you are kind, you are good to me. You cared about me even though I was unperfect and unwhole and unlovable really because I was a wretched sinner. You loved me despite that. Oh, there's so many levels to this story. We could talk about even more things that I didn't say. About how it corresponds with some of the, the stories of, of wells in the Old Testament and how it shows that Jesus is, is reaching out to his church as his bride. There's so many levels to this story, but if you take one away, it's this. That Jesus' grace and mercy extends to the most unlovable and uncared for and sinful people of our society of whom we were the worst before we knew Christ himself. My hope for you and I as we read this story is that we will say to Jesus, I was sitting out in the desert, unlovable and uncared for, destined for an eternity in hell, but you came and you entered into my life. You engaged me. You reached out to me. You're pulling me into a relationship with you. My hope is that you will say, God, you have been so good to me. I'm going to sing one more song. And the song says that. It's a new song for you, but, but you have no excuses because the course is so easy. And all it says is, for you are good, for you are good, for you are good to me. You already have it memorized. And as we sing this song, I, I encourage you to remember those two things. First of all, that, that, that if we're going to follow after Jesus, then we must be good to others. No matter how much they smell, no matter how many tattoos they have, no matter how many years they spent in prison, no matter how many times they have been divorced, we need to love them and reach out to them, lead them to Jesus. And we also must remember that we are those people with those sins and those hurts and those struggles. And yet Jesus, because he loves us and because he's good to us in his grace and mercy, reached out to us. We stand up and pray with me and then the band will come forward. Lord, God, I, I mean, 
so easy as I as I look over my own life, God, to remember that God, without your grace and your mercy, I just there's nothing good, Lord. There's nothing good. But you've given all of us that grace and that mercy, and I pray for some people in this room that they would accept it. That they would respond like the woman at the well and, and take steps forward in understanding who you are more. And maybe at first they'll just realize that you're really nice and uh, and that will lead eventually to their salvation, God. But I pray that some people would just take the steps to know you, God, and to explore the relationship with you that you are offering, God. God, let us be a church that leads people to that place. God, let us be a church that, that you use to continue to reach out to people in our world who the world seems to kick to the curb, God. Thank you for how you've allowed our church to be that, God, in the past. And Father, for, for those of us that, that have come to you, Lord, I just pray that we would be impressed again by the fact that you chose to love us. When we really and truly think back about our lives, God, we must admit, God, that we did not deserve your love. We did not deserve you suffering the worst death ever on a cross. We did not deserve you desiring a relationship with us. We did not deserve you, by your Holy Spirit, drawing us to a relationship with you, Lord. But you gave us those things anyway, God. And as we read of this story, God, when you, very literally, came up to a woman that the world told you that you should never have anything to do with, God, we can't help but see ourselves in it if we're reading it, God, with any type of, of sincerity, Lord. We can't help but see ourselves in that woman, God. But you loved us anyway. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for being so good to us. And I pray these things because you have been good to us and you have offered your grace to us. 